from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to take up part two of our discussion of Thomas Jefferson as an American immortal. Jefferson is a remarkable figure and a very complex figure. He was, on the one hand, a pretty mediocre governor of Virginia who didn't very effectively prosecute the Revolutionary War in that role. On the other hand, he was one of the greatest writers about human freedom in the entire history of human beings. And the Declaration of Independence, which in many ways is largely Jefferson's product, is still an amazing document, the centerpiece of freedom for the whole planet, indicating that Power doesn't come from kings or dictators or political parties. Power comes from God, and that every American, every human being, is in fact empowered by God with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. On the one hand, Jefferson was a very idealistic person. On the other hand, he's a very sophisticated, subtle, and often duplicitous politician. And both are somehow captured in the same person. He's a man of great principles, but on the other hand, as you'll see, as president, he sometimes broke those principles in amazing ways. The term Jeffersonian Democrat for a very long time meant somebody who was for limited government, was for lower expenses, and was essentially very, very suspicious of power in Washington. But at the same time, as you'll see, 
This is a guy who bought half a continent. He's a person who sent the Marines and the Navy to the shores of Tripoli without telling Congress. And so on the one hand, he was sort of for limited government, unless he wasn't for limited government. And it's this kind of complexity that makes Jefferson so fascinating. He was also not only extraordinarily smart, one of the three or four smartest of our presidents, but he was, in addition, a person of extraordinarily wide, eclectic interests. Jefferson read widely, taught himself Spanish while on a ship going to Europe by reading Don Quixote. He studied fossils, collected them. If you go to Monticello, his home, you'll see some of the fossils that were collected while he was president. He sponsored an expedition which was almost the equivalent of going to Mars, and Lewis and Clark crossed the continent to explore the territory that Jefferson had just bought from France. Napoleon very cleverly sold it because he realized with the Royal Navy controlling the ocean that the French would not be able in the long run to keep the western part of the United States. So he sold the entire Mississippi Valley to Jefferson and Mississippi through its tributary, the Missouri, really goes an amazing distance west. And so they ended up more than doubling the size of the United States in this one purchase. All of these are things by a president who claimed to be for extraordinarily limited government. In order to win, he actually had to invent a political party. So Jefferson had risen and ultimately had become the Secretary of State because he had served in France. He had a pretty good bit of diplomatic experience. And I think Washington thought that he was the right person to try to represent the United States in foreign policy. He very difficultly coexisted, if that's the right term, with Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton represented the commercial interests, had worked out how to borrow a huge amount of money from the Dutch, and was able to stabilize the American debt, was able to create in the first report on manufacturers probably the best single statement ever written about why there are times when a country with a brand new small industry should protect itself as a remarkable statement in favor of tariffs. And Hamilton himself was clearly brilliant. I would say that if you look at Hamilton, Franklin, and Jefferson, you're looking at three of the brightest people ever to be involved in American government. But Hamilton's interest in his vision of the world was remarkably different from Jefferson. Jefferson really represented a rural agrarian world. He would have said a world of small farmers, although the truth was that he owned slaves and basically had a plantation. But Jefferson was capable of envisioning this world of limited government and representing the interests of rural America, which at that time was the dominant part of America. And Virginia at that time was the biggest state in the country. On the other hand, Hamilton had this vision of a manufacturing and commercial future of an America which would grow strong enough to defend itself and an America which would find its ultimate source of wealth in big cities and in factories, things which Jefferson found abhorrent. Jefferson wanted a much more rural lifestyle, would claim to want a more egalitarian world, although the truth is Jefferson himself was clearly aristocratic and not particularly egalitarian. In order to seize power, Jefferson and his sidekick, James Madison, also of Virginia, and the author of the Bill of Rights, invented the Democratic Party. As John F. Kennedy used to say, he was out gathering butterflies because the excuse that 
Jefferson and Madison used for going to New York to meet with Aaron Burr was that they were collecting butterflies. In fact, what they were doing was plotting with Burr to create a party in order to win an election. Jefferson had won the vice presidency in 1796 with John Adams, the former vice president under Washington, becoming president. But Adams represented a New England and New York vision of the world and was really pretty close to an aristocratic rather than an egalitarian sense of how America should develop. Jefferson represented an upsurge of populism and was a brilliant political plotter, maintained through correspondence a network across the whole country, aroused people to, in effect, petition against what Adams wanted to do, got Adams so angry that he passed the Ellen and Sedition Acts, which would have punished people for criticizing the government, and those were then thrown out as unconstitutional. They were wildly unpopular. Jefferson came along and really was in open rebellion. It was the last time that they would have a president and vice president of opposite parties. It was a totally unwieldy project. And Adams, unfortunately, totally changed American history because Adams and his sidekick, Alexander Hamilton, who represented the New York Federalists, hated each other. And the result was their party was totally split. Well, faced with a split and decaying Federalist Party, really representing New York and North, Jefferson was able to mobilize rural America. And as I said earlier, he had the largest state in Virginia. And Jefferson won a sweeping election in 1800. And it's really the first peaceful transfer of power between two clearly opposed sides. And it created a sense of stability for the republic. Jefferson would then govern as seen by modern liberals in an idealistic way, although since Jefferson owned slaves, he's now out of fashion with the modern left. But for a very long time, he was kind of their model. But in fact, what he was doing was very methodically destroying the Federalist Party. And by about 1812, the Federalists disappear. And for a brief period of time, what were called the Democratic-Republican Party was the only major political force in the United States until it broke down with the populist insurgency of Andrew Jackson, who was a Democrat, and that led to the formation of the Whigs as the opposing party. But that doesn't occur until the late 1820s. So there's about a 20-year period where the Jeffersonians are totally dominant. You get three presidents in a row from Virginia, in Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. And remember that the first president, George Washington, was also from Virginia. So four of the five initial presidents of the United States all come from Virginia, which was the dominant state. And Virginia represented an agrarian interest remarkably different from the commercial and banking and uh, manufacturing interest of people like Alexander Hamilton. Jefferson ends up in a very strange situation in 1800 because they had not quite figured out that if you had the same electoral college votes for both the president and vice president, they would be tied. Now, everybody had agreed that Jefferson was the candidate for president and Burr was the candidate for vice president. But Burr, who is a remarkably despicable and dishonest figure, a man who came very close to treason later on in his life, and the man who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, 
And I always remind people when they worry about how intense and how difficult our political process occasionally gets, that we have not had a former Secretary of the Treasury killed by a former Vice President for over 200 years. So these guys understood a level of toughness that we fortunately have not had repeated. But Jefferson and Burr each had 73 electoral votes. Well, there was no provision at the time for breaking the tie. Everybody agreed as a gentleman's agreement that Jefferson would be president, but there was no real proof of what would happen. And it actually took 36 ballots. They started meeting on February the 9th, 1801, and finally on February the 17th, on the 36th vote, Jefferson was elected. Outside the Capitol, by the way, there were over 100,000 people who had gathered as a gigantic crowd. It was just an amazing moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega. The Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from the Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Jefferson then is sworn in, and on March 4th, 1801, this is all changed after FDR becomes president in the 1930s, and they realize that there's just too long a period between an election in November and the taking of power in March, and they bring it up to January 20th, which has been ever since. But notice that in the earlier era, when everything is done without a telegraph, without radio, by people riding horses, they had allowed a great deal of time 
for the election to occur, the electors to gather, and finally the president to be sworn in. So on March 4, 1801, Jefferson delivered his inaugural address, and he said in part, quote, Let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. Let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty and even life itself are but dreary things. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Now, he didn't actually mean that. What he really meant was, as Democratic Republicans, we are going to wipe out the Federalists. And in fact, they were very aggressive in exerting their power. Jefferson, of course, was not a great public speaker, and he knew it, but he was a great writer. So when it came time to address the Congress, Jefferson decided that he would write it and send up his written address, having his secretary, Meriwether Lewis, who would become famous later for the Lewis and Clark expedition, having him deliver the address. And throughout his eight years as president, Jefferson never addressed Congress in person, instead opting to write it to the Congress. So they got written addresses. That continued just as a tradition until Woodrow Wilson appeared. And Woodrow Wilson, who had been a college professor at Princeton, liked to give speeches, saw himself as a great orator. And so in 1913, Wilson appeared in person to deliver the State of the Union. But from the time Jefferson sent up a written version until 1913, it had always been done in writing. And for example, Lincoln's amazing addresses to the Congress, which are among the greatest writing in American presidential history, were all just delivered in writing. They weren't delivered by Lincoln himself. Jefferson argued that it wasn't that he didn't like to speak in public. Instead, he wrote to Benjamin Rush on December 20th, 1801, quote, our winter campaign, the winter session of Congress, has opened with more good humor than I expected. By sending a message instead of making a speech at the opening of the session, I have prevented the bloody conflicts to which the making an answer would have committed them. They consequently were able to set into real business at once without losing 10 or 12 days in combating an answer. In other words, Jefferson figured if he showed up in person, he would so irritate some of the members of Congress that they would feel compelled to spend their time attacking him. And instead, he thought that he had diffused the emotional tension by sending the document up in writing. He also defended not doing it when he wrote John Wales Epps on January 1st, 1802, quote, Congress have not yet done anything nor passed a vote which has produced a party division. The sending a message, instead of making a speech to be answered, is acknowledged to have had the best effect toward preserving harmony. So I think it's fair to say that from Jefferson's perspective, he's always thinking strategically. Now that he has power, he's concerned with relaxing and consolidating the power, and he knows that the less he fights with the Federalists and the more he allows them to just atrophy and gradually disappear, the less friction there is, the less fighting there is, the better off he is. Because he's president, and he already has all the power of the presidency. The fact is that he also wasn't a great public speaker, and in fact, when he gave his second inaugural address on March 4, 1805, a lot of people in the room couldn't even hear him. So the address was sent in advance to the newspapers, and the newspapers could publish them even if you couldn't hear them. Now, Jefferson had moved west, and it's hard to believe nowadays because you don't think of Charlottesville as all that far west. 
But in fact, the Tidewater farmers, the great planters, the government that had been in Williamsburg, all those things, from Jefferson's perspective, were behind him. And his focus was to the West. His father, Peter Jefferson, was one of the founding members of the Loyal Company created to ask for grants of land west of the Allegheny Mountains. Remember, back then, the frontier is the Allegheny Mountains. Nowadays, we think of that just as eastern, and if anything, you might think of the Rockies as the frontier. Interestingly, Lewis Merriweather, his father had been a member with Peter Jefferson in founding the Loyal Company, which was trying to open up the West and asking for land in the West. Now, when you look at that period, Jefferson is fascinated with the West, but frankly, he personally doesn't have that much time to go do things. If anything, he's spending time in France, where he's the minister. He's spending time in Philadelphia, and he's helping other people go West, but he is not himself able to go West. And in a funny way, Washington was more of a frontiersman than Jefferson. I mean, Washington really was physically very, very active. Washington goes west both as a surveyor. He surveys places like Little Washington in Virginia. He goes west as a head of the Virginia militia and helps start the French and Indian War, what became called the Seven Years' War in Europe. So Washington was a genuine frontiersman and understood a great deal about the frontier. Jefferson's really a gentleman farmer and an intellectual who's fascinated with the West as an idea. And interestingly, at one point, he subsidizes, when he's the minister to France, he subsidizes a guy named John Ledyard, who's an American explorer. And their idea is that the way they will explore the West is he will go east across Siberia and travel to the western coast of North America. However, when he tried to do that, he was arrested by the Russians and sent back to Europe, so that failed. In 1793... Jefferson enlisted members of the American Philosophy Society, which at that time was the leading kind of intellectual gathering in America. And he got a group of them to sponsor André Michaud, a French botanist, to, quote, find the shortest and most convenient route of communication between the U.S. and the Pacific Ocean. But it didn't get very far and didn't have anything accomplished. In 1805, the territorial governor of Louisiana, General James Wilkinson, persuaded President Jefferson to authorize an expedition to explore the beginning of the Mississippi. Now, interestingly, by the way, I always find this fascinating. The Mississippi itself starts in Minnesota, but the great source of water is the Missouri, which starts much further west and pours into the Mississippi at St. Louis and has dramatically more water than the Mississippi, but is subordinated and named the Mississippi when they join. So they're looking for the origin of the Mississippi, when in fact, far more important is to find the origin of the Missouri. Jefferson did agree with General James Wilkinson, the territorial governor of Louisiana, and Lieutenant Zebulon Pike, for whom Pike's Peak is named, was appointed to lead the party to negotiate peace treaties with the Indian tribes they encountered, but they reached the present-day Canadian border and then turned back. A year later, Pike was appointed to lead an expedition to explore the Red and Arkansas rivers. He entered Colorado, unsuccessfully attempted to scale the mountain that today is called Pikes Peak. After entering Spanish-controlled New Mexico, he was captured and sent back. But Jefferson still had not abandoned the idea. On January 18, 1803, Jefferson sent a letter to Congress 
asking for $2,500 to fund an expedition to the Pacific Ocean. They approved it. And by the way, the expedition, as often happens with government projects, turned out to cost far more than $2,500. A year later, about 45 men, headed by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, left on what became a very, very famous expedition. There is a remarkable book called Undaunted Courage, which I recommend to everybody. It captures day by day this extraordinary expedition, which, as I said earlier, is in many ways that era's equivalent of going to Mars. I mean, these guys are leaving St. Louis. They're paddling their way up the Missouri. They are crossing over around Yellowstone. They are going down the Columbia. They are encountering all sorts of Native American tribes. They are encountering grizzly bears and generally roughing it in really an expedition that just took a level of personal endurance and personal courage that is absolutely astonishing. And if you go to Philadelphia, the Academy of Natural Sciences, which became the repository for the American Philosophical Society, actually has the material that Lewis and Clark brought back. And so you can actually go and see what it was they were gathering up. And they were gathering things about plants and animals. They were taking notes about geography. They were reporting on all sorts of meetings with different native tribes. And it is one of the great romantic expeditions in American history. They're also helped dramatically by a Native American woman who both helps them talk with tribes and helps them survive. They have an African-American as part of the expedition who has a vote. And they said, look, he deserved the vote because his life was at risk too. So when they got to certain big decision points, they would all talk it out. And it was kind of like a traveling democracy. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. 
That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Jefferson had a very busy presidency. He was involved in reshaping the judiciary. The Jeffersonians hated the Federalist judges. They saw judges as instruments of government to oppress the people, and they very much favored a much more popular society in which juries played a bigger role and judges were very limited. Lawyers will all cite Marbury versus Madison, which was a major decision involving the grant of a certificate to a person who had been appointed to a job by the Federalist and who, now that the Jeffersonians were taking over, was not going to get that job. If you actually read the case carefully, what you find is that the new chief justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Marshall, is very aware that the Jeffersonians hate the court. And he knows that if he takes Jefferson head on, immediately after Jefferson having won control of the presidency and control of the House and Senate, that they'll simply abolish him. And so he maneuvers to maintain the independence of the court without infuriating Jefferson. And it's actually not some key moment where the court stands up boldly, but rather a brilliant maneuver to preserve the independence of the court by not standing up boldly. And it's worth your studying because it both tells you how lawyers sort of aggrandize their role in life, and it tells you that the court has always been inherently political. That's the nature of a Supreme Court in a free society. They have to pay some attention to deep popular interests. Jefferson, having succeeded in eight years, and he did an amazing amount. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, buying half a continent, sending the Marines and the Navy to Tripoli to defeat the Barbary pirates, organizing the dominant majority party, which is still today, the Democratic Party is the longest serving political organization on the planet. It's outlasted the Nazis, the communists, the fascists. It's outlasted most monarchies. And it's a remarkable institution. And Jefferson was, in fact, along with Madison, at the very center of organizing it. In 1809, Jefferson goes home. He leaves the presidency. He leaves public life. And he helps found the University of Virginia. It was then Central College, but it becomes the University of Virginia. Jefferson plays a major role. When, in February 14, 1816, the Virginia General Assembly established a charter for Central College, which becomes the University of Virginia, Jefferson was elected to the college's board of visitors and rector of the college. Jefferson also designed the college. And again, as an example of his intellectual reach, remember that Jefferson is an architect. He designs Monticello. He designs other public buildings. He's also a bibliophile. The original Library of Congress is Jefferson's personal library, about 4,000 volumes, although it might be pointed out he sold them to the government because he needed the money. For his entire life, Jefferson is short of money and is constantly trying to find sources of additional revenue. He's not a particularly great farmer, doesn't focus on farming, doesn't make a huge amount of money. Very different, by the way, from George Washington who was a great businessman, a great farmer, and was generally competent at everything he touched. I think it's fair to say that Jefferson had a deep, passionate interest in 
education, Jefferson was not anti-religious. Jefferson did write a letter to the Baptist in Connecticut saying that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. But what Jefferson was saying was, in a world where the Anglican church got paid tax money, that he did not think any church should get government money. However, he was not for an anti-religious position. In fact, Jefferson allowed the treasury building to be used as a church. He himself went up to the Capitol, which was a church up until the mid-1840s. Jefferson signed a bill to send missionaries to the Indians. So the whole notion that he was in any way anti-religion is just wrong. And in fact, if you go to the Jefferson Memorial, you'll see a great quote from Jefferson where he has sworn eternal hostility against all forms of tyranny over the minds of man. And I think that that's the heart of Jefferson. He really was committed. And to give you a sense of the depth of his commitment on education and the depth of his commitment on religious liberty, he wrote out for his own tombstone. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Born April 2nd, 1743, old style, died July 4th, 1826. He thought those were the three things he wanted to be remembered for. Not president, not vice president, not foreign minister, not ambassador to France. Author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. And it gives you a flavor of what he had dedicated his life to, symbolically. He died on exactly the same day, the 4th of July, as John Adams, his great rival in developing political power. They had gotten to write each other and sort of reconciled over the years. And there was something symbolic that on July the 4th, the date when Jefferson and Adams had helped author the Declaration of Independence, they both passed away. He is an immortal. There's no question that to understand America, you have to spend some time trying to understand Thomas Jefferson. And there's no question that that time will be well spent because he was a remarkable person. Thank you for listening. You can read more about Jefferson's life and get links to my other Immortals podcast on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.